Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm, the fifth chapter. Psalm chapter 5 is where we want to begin momentarily as we commence with Q&A night for the month of October. For anyone who is not a regular here at Lakeside, you're wondering right now, what in the world is Q&A night? Let me give you just a brief introduction. I take questions from our members and from our kids and uh, even sometimes from folks even outside of this congregation take those questions. Actually, let me rephrase that. I take questions that are submitted to me. I don't do the live question thing. We have live questioning, and that's called Bible class. That's when we do that, but we don't do the live question thing here. take questions that have been submitted to me, and I take those questions and study on them and run them through the matrix of God's Word to try and provide and formulate some Bible answers that hopefully will then help us in matters of faith, matters of Christian living, and maybe just in matters of helping us to just understand God's Word a little bit better. And in fact, this evening, it's probably going to be more of that latter category because all three questions that I'll be addressing tonight come directly from our Bible reading program that we've been involved in this year. All three of these questions tonight come from the wisdom literature. This year, as a congregation, we've been trying to read through the wisdom literature of the Bible, books like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job, and even going to be reading a little bit of James before long. I appreciate these questions tonight very, very much because these come from what I believe are some very observant Bible readers and Bible students. And I hope tonight, not only will I be able to maybe provide some answers or at least some things to think about uh, as it pertains to these questions, but I hope maybe probably even more than that, be able to help give us maybe some useful skills, some things that will help us whenever we sit down and read God's Word and study from it, just some helpful skills that will just help us hopefully throughout all of our lives. Glad that you're here tonight. It's been a wonderful day. It's been a nice afternoon. It's good that we can close out our time together here this evening. Read with me in Psalm, the fifth chapter. I want to notice this first question because it's taken right out of Psalm 5. In Psalm 5 and in verse 5, David says this. Psalm 5, verse 5. He says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. This first question comes right out of this passage, and the question is this. Does God hate sinners? Because on a surface reading of Psalm 5, verse 5, it sure sounds like God hates sinners. What in the world is up with that? You know, we regularly affirm that God, God is love. We have songs about that. We praise God and thank Him for that in our prayers. We talk about how God loves everybody, and so what in the world gives with a verse that says, God hates all evildoers. Well, I should tell you, this is not the only place where this is found in the Bible. The person who asked this question was talking about Psalm 5, verse 5, but this kind of language is found in another place in the wisdom literature. Look in Proverbs 6. Just hold your place in Psalms. We'll come back in a minute. In Proverbs chapter 6, This is that famous little list of the six things, yea, seven, that the Lord hates. And I want you to notice that in that list, some people are mentioned. In Proverbs chapter 6 and in verse 16, the wise man says there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. What are those things? Verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that make haste to run to evil. Look at verse 19 now though. A false witness who breathes out lies. That's talking about a person. 
Then notice this, one who sows discord among brothers. Whoa! God hates these people. Again, what happened to that stuff about God is love? What happened to that passage that said God shows His love for us even while we were still sinners? What about that passage? What about that old phrase, hate the sin but love the sinner? What happened to that? We've got a couple of passages here in Psalms and in Proverbs now that seem to be saying the very opposite of all of that. What's going on? Well, let me give you just a few points for your consideration this evening. First and foremost, when we read either of these passages, we need to start by making sure that we keep these passages in their context. What are we reading here in Psalms? What are we reading here in Proverbs? Well, when we read these verses about God's attributes and God's ways, we are reading them in wisdom literature. Both Psalms and Proverbs are very poetic books. They are designed to use imagery and figures of speech to provoke our minds, to provoke our thinking, to provoke our understanding. But even more than just that intellectual stimulation, they stir within us some feelings and some emotions that go along with those teachings of Scripture. So, for example, let me illustrate it this way. I maybe would say to my wife, I might go to her and I might say, Tiffany, I love you. And that's that's good. It's a good thing for a husband to say to his wife. But maybe on another occasion, I might come to her and I might say, Tiffany, my love for you is stronger than a mighty rushing river. She's rolling her eyes right now. What a cheese ball to come and say that. Yes, it may sound cheesy coming from me, especially in that way. But we certainly understand that if I do say that, if I do take that extra effort to use those expressions, the intent there is to say in very poetic kinds of way and express my love for her in a greater sort of way. And I believe that's what we have when we're looking here in Psalms and in Proverbs. We have some scriptural truths, but they are being couched in metaphors and figures of speech to help us better understand God's feelings, particularly in these passages, God's feelings about sin. Go back to that Psalm 5 passage again. Can you see in this passage that what the psalmist is talking about is he is talking not about a person. He is talking about God's feelings towards sin. This passage announces to us that God hates evil deeds. That God hates not sinners themselves... God hates what sinners are doing. Look at the context here. Let's let's get a couple of verses here. Look at verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Verse 6. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Do you see there in that context? That the emphasis in those verses, it's on the actions. It's on what is done. The actions of the wicked and the evil. These verses tell us that God hates what sinners do. God hates sin. He loathes and abhors sin. But of course, sin, sin does not exist independently of people. Sin doesn't just, you know, float around on its own. You don't box sin up. You don't, you know, I'm over here gathering somebody. What are you doing over here? I'm gathering up a bunch of sin. That's, that's not how sin works. Sin is something that people do. It's an action that we are involved in. 
And so what we have in this context as we look at Psalm chapter 5, in this poetic language, is we see that the sinner, the sinner is being put in the place of the sinful act. The person is being put in the place for what they are doing. That sinful person is substituted for the sinful actions that they are involved in. That is a literary device known as metonymy. I realize it's not a verse or not a word that we use very often. It's not a word that you actually find in the Bible, but it is a concept that we see in the Bible quite a bit. And you know what? Whether we realize it or not, we use metonymy all the time. We use it all the time in our day-to-day talk and in our language. For example, if a kid comes home after school and they throw their books down and they say, I hate Shakespeare. Really? When did you meet him? I always thought Shakespeare would be a really nice guy. Why do you hate Shakespeare? But of course, when they say, I hate Shakespeare, they don't mean the person. What do they mean? They mean, I hate William Shakespeare's works. I hate the things that he wrote, the things that he did. And now I've got to read all of those boring works. Do you see, Shakespeare's name is substituted for what he did, for how that person is being put in the place of his actions. And I said a moment ago, the Bible does this. The Bible does this kind of thing in several places, not just in the wisdom literature. Look in the New Testament with me in Luke 16. In Luke 16, this is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And you you know this story. The rich man, he's in torment. And he is concerned as he sees that he's suffering and he sees uh, Lazarus is in paradise, but he's suffering. And he begins to think about his brothers. And he wants somebody, particularly wants Lazarus, to go back and warn his brothers. Hey, warn them not to come to this awful place. Well, Abraham responds to the rich man. Look at the language Abraham uses. In Luke 16 and in verse 29, But Abraham said, Your brothers... They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Well, wait wait a minute. Moses has been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years, and so have the prophets. They've been dead for hundreds of years. What in the world do you mean by that, that we have Moses and the prophets? Well, what he means is he means you have the works of Moses. You have the works of the prophets. You have the things that they did, the things that were recorded down, those literary books of the Bible, the Old Testament. You see, the name of Moses and the prophets is being substituted, metonymy, for the deeds that they accomplished, the things that they did. Now, as we turn back to our original passages, let's just let's see that metonymy thing in action again. Look at that Proverbs 6 passage again. In Proverbs 6, talking about those, those various things that God hates... Look there in verse 17 again. Proverbs 6, verse 17. Think about this. God hates a lying tongue. What does that mean? Does that mean that God hates, He hates the muscle? Actually hates that thing in there? That God, He just cannot stand that muscle. God cannot abide that muscle that is inside the human mouth. Is that what that means? No, that means that God hates the sin that people use their tongues to commit. Or what about there in verse 18? What talks there about feet that make haste to run to evil. Oh, God hates feet. God hates feet. Would anybody come away saying and thinking, no, God just hates feet? No, of course not. That's outrageous. That's ridiculous. And in much the same way, it is outrageous and it is ridiculous to read Proverbs chapter 6, verses 17, 18, and 19 there. 
Or to read Psalm 5 and in verse 5 and to come away thinking, you know what? God just hates sinners. God just hates individual people who are involved in sin. No. No, what God hates is He hates the sin that those individuals are doing. I think passages like these, what they actually do is they actually help us have a greater understanding of just how much God does hate and despise sin. Maybe as well, one of the good things that passages like these and questions like these help with is they serve as a reminder for us that we always need to be very, very careful with figures of speech in the Bible. Need to be careful with those kinds of literary devices like metonymy that the Bible uses to try and express some important truths. You know, if we're not careful, we can make just a total mess out of things that the Bible is trying to say. For example, Jesus talks about plucking out your eyes. Well, if you don't know how to use that passage correctly, you may end up going home and plucking out your eye and still be involved in the sin that Jesus is condemning in that passage. See, we need to be careful. We always want to be careful to rightly handle the word of truth lest we come away in this circumstance thinking erroneously that God hates sinners. God does not hate sinners. In fact, maybe the simplest answer to that question, does God hate sinners? Hasn't God already settled that matter once and for all? Hasn't God already expressed how He feels about sinners? when He sent His perfect Son to this earth and to die for sinners. seems to me that it's really, really hard to argue the case from Psalm 5 or from any other passage of the Bible that God hates sinful people when God would be willing to let His own Son die in order to pay the price for their sins. Let's turn our attention now to this second question this evening. And this second question comes from the book of Job. Would you find Job chapter 1 with me? In Job chapter 1, we are reading in Job this year, reading one chapter a week in our reading plan. And so we are slowly but surely making our way to the end. In Job chapter 1, I want to just notice this dramatic opening scene, the thing that ends up getting the ball rolling for everything else that we read about in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, I'm reading in verse number 6. In Job 1 and verse 6, the Bible says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Our question from Job chapter 1 and verse 6 is this, and that is, Who are these sons of God? That is a question that actually has a lot of uncertainty about it. And the reason for that is, is because that expression, sons of God, it's actually used in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different contexts all throughout the Scripture. For example, you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6 and in verse 2. It talks there about the sons of God and how they took the daughters of men as their wives. Some have said, well, that's just talking about the descendants of Seth, the, the family of Seth that continued on. Others have said, though, that those sons of God talked about there, that those are some kind of spirit beings that fell from heaven and they began mating in some way with human women. And then, of course, there's passages like Hosea 1 and verse 10. That's actually one of several kinds of passages that uses the phrase sons of God. More modern translations probably use the term children of God. But in that context, it's simply just a reference to to the faithful children of Israel, those sons of God who were the children, the physical children of Israel. And then even when we come to the New Testament, that phrase, sons of God, is found on occasion. Galatians 3.26 immediately comes to mind. 
passage that talks about that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What's that talking about? Well, that's just talking about Christians. That's talking about people like you and me in that sense. We are sons of God, or if you're a woman, a daughter of God. However, having given all of those kind of quick explanations of what sons of God means in in those various passages, I'm not persuaded that the expression sons of God in Job 1 verse 6 is any of those things. In Job 1 verse 6, what we see here is a meeting between God and the sons of God, and then Satan wanders into the scene. So I always try to picture this in my mind as best as I can with what limited information we have here in the passage. And as I picture all of these characters together, all of these players together, Job 1 verse 6 seems to be describing a meeting between spirit beings. We know first of all that God is a spirit. We know that absolutely. John 4 verse 24. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We know as well, I think, that Satan is a spirit being. I think that's evidenced by passages like Ephesians 6 and in verse 12 that talks about how our enemy is not composed and made up of flesh and blood, but it is spiritual forces, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The devil is a spirit being. God and the devil certainly can take on human and physical incarnations, but ultimately they are spirit beings. So again, we're trying to picture this scene in Job 1 and verse 6 And I'll tell you what my immediate inclination is, is that these sons of God, well, that they would also be some kind of spirit being. And since the text tells us that they came to present themselves before the Lord, that would seem to indicate that these are some kind of beings who are, they're doing the Lord's bidding. These are beings who serve the Lord and they're now coming back to Him to to lay themselves before Him and to, to tell them of what they have done and to seek His blessing. By this point, as I'm kind of building that image in your mind, you can probably guess as to what kind of spirit beings I believe is being talked about here that would be doing the Lord's bidding. I believe Job 1 verse 6 is a reference to angels. I do believe it is talking about angels. And maybe the very best hint that we have that helps us to reach that conclusion is right here in the book of Job. Not in Job 1, but in Job chapter 38. Would you find Job 38? Because this is the one other reference to the sons of God in the book of Job. In Job chapter 38, sons of God is used in this context and it sure seems to be a reference to angels. In Job 38, this is the Lord. He's answering and responding to some of Job's questions and criticisms and complaints. And He says to him, the Lord says to Job, Job 38 verse 4, He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Of course, Job does not. Job was not present when the Lord was laying the foundations of the earth. Verse 5, who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, whoever these sons of God were, it would seem that they were there when the Lord laid the foundation of the earth. When the world was being created, God, through these rhetorical questions, He says, Job, you weren't there. I know that you weren't there because you hadn't even been created yet. You didn't see all that stuff being made. Humans did not get to see the world being spoken into existence. But verse 7 says that these sons of God, they were there. 
And they shouted for joy. They shouted for joy, all of them together, at God's creative power. In fact, sons of God here, you'll notice, it's actually grouped with another set of people there, another set of created beings. The morning stars. These morning stars also sang and rejoiced on that day. Most commentators and biblical scholars, they seem to believe that these expressions, morning stars and sons of God in Job 38 and verse 7, that that is a reference to the angelic heavenly host. You know, in other places, the Bible talks about angels being different different classifications of angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, different orders of angels, maybe even having different functions and purposes. And so maybe this is even a reference to two different kinds, two different classifications of angelic beings. I want you to notice that Job 38 verse 7, it's talking about some kind of created beings who shouted for joy whenever God created this earth. Now, I guess my question is this. If Job 38 verse 7 is not talking about angels, then what is it talking about? And I'm not asking that rhetorically. I mean, I'm asking that literally. If that's not what it's talking about, what is it talking about? Because I don't know. But I'll say that I do think it is talking about angels. And because of that, I then feel comfortable saying that the sons of God, used back in our original passage in Job 1 and verse 6, that that is a description of God's faithful, obedient angels that live to serve Him and to do His bidding. I'll even just maybe kind of add this in here as a bonus. The Targum, that's a written collection of all of the the explanations and the, the expansions of the Old Testament that the rabbis would give to help listeners better understand the, the Hebrew language of those Old Testament Scriptures, that, that book that was collected in the first century. The Targum describes sons of God in Job 1 and verse 6 as troops of angels. That's how they understood that term to mean. Now, I want to be clear... What the Targum says, that's not the same as an inspired apostle saying that. But it does come from some really old documents, from some people who had a much greater understanding of the Hebrew language than you or I ever will. And so I'll just leave this question by saying that I do believe Job 1 verse 6 is probably talking about angels, but I sure would be happy to entertain any other ideas that you may have about that. And I don't want to just close the lid on this and say that it absolutely is angels because it may be something entirely different. I'll solicit your feedback about that after services are over. Maybe I'll just say right here as a side note, I realize that there is much in Job, that first chapter, that really gets our attention, that really gets our imagination running. You know, where did God and the sons of God, you know, where did they meet? What is, is, is it talking about heaven? Is it talking about some other special place? Is it talking about somewhere on earth? How in the world did Satan get in there? What's all that all about? We've got all kinds of questions about all of that. I have lots of things I'm curious about as it pertains to Job chapter 1. But the fact of the matter is, God did not choose to give us a very thorough and detailed explanation of all of those kinds of things. The main thing I believe that the Lord wants us to see in Job 1 and verse 6 is that Satan, he is not equal to God. And that Satan wields far less power than the Lord. And I say that because we don't want to miss the forest for the trees, get hung up on the sons of God, and miss the main point, and that is that God's in charge, and the devil is not anywhere near on par with the power of the Lord. hope that maybe helps give some ideas to think about as it pertains to Job 1 and verse 6. Finally then this evening, let's return to the book of Proverbs. This third question comes from the book of Proverbs. And it comes from our uh, 
cycle of readings through the book of Proverbs. We're working our way through Proverbs for a second time now this year. I want you to notice in Proverbs chapter 8. In Proverbs chapter 8, look in verse 5. In Proverbs chapter 8 and in verse 5, the wise man says there, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. This third question comes not just from Proverbs 8 verse 5, but really from an accumulation of verses just like this one, which repeatedly address the fool. Proverbs is certainly a book of wisdom, but regularly it contrasts the way of the wise with the way of the fool. And so the question before us this evening is, is it sinful to be a fool? Are those two things always synonymous, foolishness and sinfulness? Now, in our world today, we use that word fool to simply just describe somebody who's done something dumb. Somebody who's just done something real boneheaded. Somebody who's just done something that just, I mean, they just are completely lacking in sense. Sometimes when we talk about fools in our day and time, we maybe think of the court jester, don't we? But I want to say to you this evening, that doesn't mean that that person is a sinner. Just because you've done something kind of boneheaded, just because you tried to make coffee without putting a filter in there, ah, oh boy, that you were a fool when you did that. Boy, what a boneheaded thing that you did there. That doesn't mean that you committed sin. It's not a sin to be a fool in that kind of sense. But you should know. You should know that the Bible does not always use the term fool in that sort of way. And when you're reading in the book of Proverbs and it starts talking about a fool... Please do not immediately think of the court jester just acting goofy and just kind of dumb. Because lots of times in the book of Proverbs, to be a fool, it means to be willfully ignorant of God and to deliberately fight against God's will and God's ways. And I can show that to you from a sampling of verses. Look in Psalm 14. In Psalm chapter 14, here is someone who the Bible describes as a fool... And this guy is not just, you know, kind of lacking some common sense or, you know, he's just kind of dumb. No, Psalm 14, look at verse 1. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. That's a person who is in sin, who would deny the authority of God, a person who would continue on in their wickedness. They are described by the psalmist, as a fool. And as you turn back to the book of Proverbs, it is used several times in Proverbs in that same way. Look in Proverbs 10. In Proverbs chapter 10, look in verse 18. In Proverbs 10 and in verse 18, the wise man says here, he says, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. That's not a lack of common sense. That's sin. That's someone who has committed sin. They have done something wrong and they are involved in sinful and wrong behavior. Look in Proverbs 14. Just turn over a couple pages. In Proverbs 14, look in verse 16. In Proverbs 14 and in verse 16. This is the passage that maybe we might read it on first pass and we might think, oh, well, well, this is just talking about somebody who really doesn't have a whole lot of sense. Well, look at it again. Proverbs 14, verse 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil. But a fool is reckless and careless. What's that talking about there? You know, I I sometimes am foolish in that I'm 
kind of reckless, kind of careless, not really paying attention to everything that's going on around me. Is that what that's talking about? No. The Proverbs writer is talking about someone who is reckless and careless with sin, with temptation. Look at what he says in the first part of the verse. The wise man turns away from evil. But fools, fools don't do that. Fools do not turn away from evil. They're reckless and they're careless in that regard. One more verse in this connection in Proverbs 28. In Proverbs chapter 28, here's a place where we can't just read one verse. We need to get a couple of verses together in order to understand what the proverb is getting at. In Proverbs 28, look in verse 25. Proverbs 28 verse 25. A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Look at verse 26 there. You know, in some ways, I, I'm inclined to say that, well, that's, that's just talking about a guy who lacks common sense. He just kind of thinks that he's got it figured out, and so he's, he, he's, just, he's just acting kind of dumb in the moment. But look in contrast. Look at verse 25. What's verse 25 say? He says, the one who trusts in the Lord. Whereas by contrast, verse 26, the fool is the one who isn't trusting in the Lord. He's the guy who spurns the Lord. He's trusting in himself. That is sin. That is self-will. That is self-directed living. That is sinful. So I want to urge you that as you are reading in the book of Proverbs, you need to note very, very carefully that yes, sometimes Proverbs will admonish us, you know, hey, think, use your noggin, use your brain, show a little bit of common sense. There are some cases where that happens. But many other times in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs speaks of a fool as one who ignores God, ignores His commands, ignores His will, and ignores His ways. And in that sense, the answer to this question is absolutely yes. Being a fool is sinful in that sense. Let me give you one more verse in all of this. In Proverbs chapter 17. In Proverbs 17, one of the things that Proverbs teaches us is that fools can be dangerous. They can be dangerous to themselves. They can be a danger to others. In Proverbs 17 and in verse 12, this is one of those Proverbs that is, the illustration that's used there just kind of sticks with you and doesn't escape your mind. Proverbs 17 verse 12, Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. You see, fools get involved in sin because they don't have enough sense and because they don't care enough about God to do what's right, to follow His will. And As a result, that can bring harm and hurt to themselves, but it can also hurt you too. So I would say probably here, especially to our young people, young people, you need to be careful not to keep company with fools. The wise man says that leads down a wrong path. It'll bring harm upon your life. Well, that'll do it for Q&A night for the month of October. Hope these ideas and the things that we've talked about this evening, I hope these things have been helpful for you, give you some things to think about. Things that hopefully might even help you, especially as you study the Bible and how you approach the Bible and the tactics and the things we always want to be mindful for. This is appropriate that we would close with this particular question. Is it sinful to be a fool? And I will say to you that as we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ and try to implore and encourage people to become Christians, that if you fall into that second point right there, 
You're just willfully resistant to the will of God. You're not doing what He wants you to do. You are a fool. And I don't try to just throw that word out casually and flippantly. But if that fits you, those kinds of passages, if that describes you, you are a fool. You are heading, headed for certain ruin and destruction if you continue on that path. The good news is, is that the Lord has allowed us to live, given us good health of body and mind to be here this very night, to be around people who love us and care about us and who want to help us to do what's right and to go to heaven. And that's what this moment and this opportunity is all about. To give anyone who is ready the chance to obey the gospel. To begin submitting to God. To stop living foolishly for self. Start living for the Lord. Doing things His way. Tonight, you can render your obedience to the gospel through faith, through confessing Jesus as God's Son, repenting and turning away from sin, turning to God, and being baptized, letting us immerse you in water. we got water back there. There's garments back there. There are people, myself and others, who would be ready to assist you in becoming a Christian this very night. If you are a child of God, but you've drifted off the path, you've deliberately fighting against God, pushing His will and His ways out of your life, brother or sister, stop being a fool. Come back to the Lord. Repent. Humble yourself before Him. Pray to Him. And if we can encourage you and pray with you, then tonight we would love nothing more than to help you be in a right relationship with the Lord. Whatever your circumstances may be, let's not be foolish. Let's not think that somehow, well, we've got all the time in the world to get our lives right. Boy, that's foolish. Get our lives right, right now. If you're ready to respond to the invitation, would you make your way forward? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.